Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Christian Van Bremen. I remember when he kissed me, the first thought that came to my mind was, wow, guys' mouths are so much bigger than girls' mouths. <laughs> that and more. But before that, I just want to say, you know, you probably don't have much time to go to the post office. You're busy. No one's got time for all the traffic and waiting in line and all of that. That's why Stamps.com is one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. post office right to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, simply use your own computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail. With Stamps.com, you get $0.05 cents off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. We've been using Stamps.com for years now at Risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now, Risk listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale with no long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Risk. That's Stamps.com, enter Risk. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Quantic behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Fundamentals. These are three stories of people who were getting down to brass tacks of figuring out just who they are and how they want to be. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a remarkable story that a dear friend of us here at the podcast, Charlie, shared at the show we recently did in Richmond, Virginia. But before that, we're going to hear a story that was shared at a, a recent live show we did right here at home in New York City at Caveat. Christian Van Bremen, uh, his name has two A's, Christian. You can find him on Instagram at Mr. Christian. Here he is at the Risk Live show in New York with a story we named after a line from Shakespeare, To thine own self be true. It was the summer of 1995, and I was about to become a senior in high school. I also, the previous semester, had transferred from another high school to an arts high school, which was fantastic because it meant I didn't have to spend a full another year at the hellmouth that was my previous school. <laughs> so I arrived to this arts magnet school a little shell-shocked from what my previous school experience was like. I used to get food thrown at me every single day and get called a fucking faggot every single day. So when I showed up to this art school, I was a little timid, didn't know how people were going to respond to me. But the thing about this school was, was the social hierarchy was based upon how outlandish and weird you were made you more popular. So with my piercings and my silver vinyl pants, I was a big hit. <laughs> so I was relishing this newfound sense of belonging. And that summer, I was hanging out on the rooftop with my friend Heather. And we were smoking weed and staring at the stars and talking about deep stuff like life and she turned to me and she said you know Will told me that he has a crush on you and my eyes got huge me yeah you come on I invited him over I hope you don't mind well just so you know Will was the hottest guy in school he was like 
Jordan Catalano, but slightly goth and with a better personality. He was on the marathon team, but he also wore eyeliner every day. He also was wise beyond his years and completely comfortable with the fact that he was gay. I was in awe of the fact that he was so comfortable with himself. I, on the other hand, was still grappling with that. I had a feeling maybe that I might be gay. I had a poster of Morrissey that I hung above my bed. (laughs) And I would stare up at him at night as I let myself drift off to sleep. Does that mean I'm gay? (laughs) I just couldn't bear to let the guys who harassed me be right about me. I couldn't bear the fact that these guys who ridiculed me and made me feel like an outcast actually knew more about my sexuality than I did, and I did not want them to be right. I was angry. I was confused. I let my style be my armor, and... You know, they could make fun of the way that I dress. I had control over that. I just didn't have control over them making fun of me for something I still didn't even really realize yet. So there I am on the rooftop with Heather and this guy, the hottest guy in school who apparently has a crush on me, is on his way over. I'm flabbergasted, I'm scared, and I'm a little excited. And we heard the rattle of the ladder, and Will's head rose up to the roof to greet us. Heather, within a matter of minutes, groaned and was like, Oh, my stomach hurts. I have to to go downstairs and lay down. You guys just hang out up here. Have a good time. I sensed I was a subject of their conspiracy. So I made small talk to act light, and suddenly in the mid-sentence, Will planted a kiss on me. It was my first time kissing a guy. I remember when he kissed me, the first thought that came to my mind was, wow, guys' mouths are so much bigger than girls' mouths. (laughs) I'd kissed a handful of girls before, but there were no fireworks, as they say, so I just didn't know what the big deal was. But kissing Will, there were fireworks. And so the second thought that came to me was, oh, shit, I'm gay. So, Will and I wound up spending the rest of the summer together. We had a great time, and as September drew near and the school year was about to begin, Will said to me how excited he was to go back to school, and I was like, why? And he was like, well, I can't wait to show everybody at school that you're my boyfriend. Sweet, right? I was not prepared for that. This was something I hadn't even considered. I felt if I showed up to school with Will, it was going to just open up this whole new onslaught of gay bashing coming my way. I didn't want anyone to know anything about me. I was happy just being the guy in the crazy clothes. Being with Will would have made everything very public. So when school started, I did everything I could to hide from Will. And when he put his arms around my shoulder, I'd shrug him off. No PDA, Will. Shortly thereafter, a new kid started at school. He was so hot, super exotic. He had two lesbian moms and a pride sticker on the bumper of his red convertible. It wasn't very long before he and Will hooked up, and I wasn't mad at them. I was actually mad at myself that my shame had driven Will away. Spring came, and it was time for us to audition for the school plays. I had my heart set on getting a role that had no lines whatsoever. (laughs) So when I saw my name on the roster and I recognized that I was cast as Sir Andrew Aguecheek in Twelfth Night by Shakespeare, I was dismayed. So just so you know, Sir Andrew is pretty much written to be like a Shakespearean equivalent to the sissy buffoon. He leaps across the stage. He's really vain. He thinks he's a good dancer, and he makes these yelps and squawks, and he's pretty much the laughing stock of the play. Not something I was ready for. So I went to the, uh, my teacher's office, and I was like, Mr. Davies, can't I just have a role where I'm like a, a townsperson or like a guard or something with no lines? And Mr. Davies spoke with this perfect theatrical voice and speech, and he was like, 
Absolutely not. You are meant to play this role. And he ushered me out of his office so he could finish his lunch. You know that scene in Carrie where Carrie's like got the pig blood on her and she's dripping and you hear this voice on repeat go, they're all going to laugh at you! They're all going to laugh at you! That's what was going through my head as I was arriving to my first day of rehearsals. Except nobody was laughing. In fact, everybody was just staring me with their eyes glazed over as I fumbled through my scenes. Mr. Davies, I saw him reach deep within himself for his final ounce of patience and wipe his face with his whole hand, and he would say, Try it again, but funny. (laughs) How was I supposed to do this? I didn't know what the heck I was going to do. I could tell that my fears were blocking me from actually being able to take a risk or to be vulnerable enough to be laughed at. I got so worked up, so stressed out, I stopped eating altogether, and I think that it was because of the level of stress, eventually my body just shut down and I wound up getting pneumonia. So I spent two weeks watching reruns of Bewitched, and my friend April came over, and she was there to bring me my homework, and she let me know that there was an understudy that had just gotten cast to replace me, because it seemed like I probably wasn't going to make it back to school in time for the show to start. I should have been relieved, but something swelled within me. This was my part. I'd worked really hard to get into this school, and I'd been somehow given this role and given an opportunity to showcase my talent, and I wasn't taking it because of my own fears. The same fears that were preventing me from being able to let love into my life. I knew that something had to change, and I needed to start right then and there. The fire in my belly that suddenly rose up must have helped me to heal because suddenly, within a few days, I was feeling better and went back to school, and with no time to spare, we were in, already in dress rehearsals. So somebody handed me my costume as I'm you know, trying to get things ready. Oh, my God. It was lavender satin with lace collars, a huge white hat, and a big plume of ostrich feathers. I winced as I walked to the dressing room to try it on. Once on, I looked at myself in the mirror, and I let out the biggest guffaw. I looked absolutely ridiculous, but kind of fabulous. (laughs) I changed my posture, and I really started to play with the physicality as my lanky, weird body was in this really uncomfortable Shakespearean-era suit. I started playing with my voice and chuckling at myself in the process. Opening night, I was so nervous as I was waiting in the wings, but I did a very melodramatic power pose and did little jigs with my scene partners before we took the stage. The lights came up, and we hadn't even said a single line, but the sheer physicality of us just waiting there as the lights came on, already we got laughter from the audience, which fueled me. It actually made me turn the volume up on my energy a little bit. So, well, not a little bit, to 12, let's say. And so when it came time for me to take my leap, I leapt clear across the stage. When it came time for me to make my yelps, I yelped like a donkey being dunked in ice water. And the laughter kept mounting and mounting. It felt incredible. This laughter wasn't the laughter I was accustomed to, which was usually mockery. This was laughter where people were celebrating what I was bringing with my co-stars in that moment on that stage, and it felt phenomenal. Every time I came on for another scene, the audience would roar with applause. It felt awesome, and afterward, in the dressing room, I was still trembling as I was taking my makeup off, and Mr. Davies came into the dressing room, picked me up off the ground, and spun me around in circles, and he was like, you did it, you fucking killed it out there! (laughs) It was like the end of a schmaltzy Disney movie, but it was terrific. Something shifted within me by playing Sir Andrew Aguecheek. There was... I felt like this part of myself that was always really wanting to be unleashed finally was given permission to. I opened up in ways that I had never been open before. And when I went to school, to be honest, there are still moments where I'll do something, I'll make like some melodramatic gesture or like say something in a certain manner, and I'm like, that is so Sir Andrew of me right now. <laughs> but actually, it's just me, I guess. So... 
I go back to school after that weekend and uh, people were giving me hugs and telling me how great I was. And usually I would kind of shy away from compliments, but I, I embraced it with utter gratitude. I graduated and shortly thereafter came out and uh, I went to community college. And one day I was sitting at the reflection pool and I was studying and enjoying the sunlight and I heard my name get called and I looked up and it was Will. And he sat down next to me and we struck up a conversation and I got a second chance. Only that time I was proud to be seen walking around campus with him hand in hand. Thank you. Literally sitting in my closet, in my closet, in my closet. He can talk, 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 I can It's 5.30 a.m., I'm 11 years old, and all I want to do is see how my Neopets are doing. (laughs) My family and I have been traveling for three days from Virginia to Shanghai, China, where my dad has just got some really cool job. And since I have jet lag, and since it is so early, I decide to crawl out of my makeshift bed over to the desktop and slowly open my mother's laptop. And it makes this glorious ah sound when it's waking up. And that wakes up my dad. And he's sort of like, who's there? And I'm worried that he's going to be mad at me, that I've disrupted his sleep. But instead, he says, come with me. I want to show you something. So we get dressed, and we go from our hotel room, which is on the 64th floor, to the lobby, which is on the 51st floor. And as the double doors open, there's this floor-to-ceiling window looking over the cityscape, and we take a seat on the leather couches in front of the window. And within moments, the sun begins to peek over the horizon. And Shanghai is a city that never sleeps, but... In the brilliance of the morning light, all the neon and all the noise from the night before just hushes. And I can see these two little tugboats just eking down the Huangpu River into the East China Sea. And my dad puts his hand on my shoulder, this really intimate gesture that he's never done before. And I look up at him and he just whispers, this reminds me of Blade Runner. I'm like, Dad, what's a Blade Runner? (laughs) And uh, over eggs and toast and orange juice, he starts to tell me about when he was my age, he loved reading Tintin comic books and reading Thomas Pynchon, and how the first time he read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, he dreamed of a future where people from across cultures and societies could unite with technology and form this amazing civilization, and that's what he saw in this city. And it was honestly the happiest I had ever seen him. Now, I did not have a close relationship to him at that point. I, he's kind of an intimidating figure. He's really tall, like his armpit goes above my head. He's got this raven black hair and these sad puppy dog eyes, always dressed like a cowboy, big leather rimmed hat and leather gloves and, and the whole nine yards. We 
didn't even go to the movies together. He never took me to the zoo. One time he tried to take me to the museum and I got lost. And that was a whole fiasco. So I had never dreamed of this moment happening. And he had this kind of weird thing where he would just out of nowhere say, I'm going to Europe, and then disappear for a week. And so I always kind of thought he was like a spy on a a super secret mission. And so when my mom tells me one day, your dad is going to be away for a couple of weeks, I take on a conspiratorial tone. And I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, like a secret kind of trip for a couple of weeks. She kind of tuts her head and says, no, your dad has a problem. And he's going to go to a place where people can help him. And you can't tell anybody about this because they won't understand. I try best to understand what she's saying, but I, I don't quite get it. And a couple of weeks later, we get up early in the morning and drive out to the countryside. And there's this big white house where my dad is staying. And before we can take him home, we have to talk to this man who's very tall and he's wearing a lab coat. And I don't quite understand what he's saying to my dad, but one of the things that sticks out to me is he says, you know, your wife and daughter love you very much. God has given you a second chance, and second chances in life are so precious. Please don't waste this. And he gives them a little coin. And when we get in the car, my dad gives that coin to me, and The coin on the front side has a butterfly, and on the back side, it says, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So when we're sitting, eating, talking over breakfast in China, I think, this is it. This is when we're going to start going to the zoo together. This is when everything's going to be different. Maybe he'll take me on a secret mission with him. Life's going to change. But after a couple of weeks, that's not what happens. He goes out really late and sleeps until past when I go to school. Our conversations stop happening entirely, and it's almost as if it never happened. We go back home to the States for Christmas, and we're staying in a hotel, I go back to the hotel room and I find my dad lying with his back on the floor. And my friend Cynthia is going to come over and hang out with me in a couple of minutes. And I don't know how to handle the situation. I just want him to get up and stop what he's doing. So I say, Dad, get up. And he doesn't move. And I say, Dad, get up. He kind of groans and he just waves his hand at me saying, leave me alone. And so I start to have the first thoughts that a criminal would have in a TV show, which is, okay, uh, where am I going to put the body? (laughs) And how am I going to get out of here? And so he's a really big man. He's way bigger than I am. Remember, armpit head. So I grab him by the ankles, and I just start pulling. Because if I put him in the bathroom, then I can just convince Cynthia that there's a mess in there, and she just doesn't want to go in there. And as I'm pulling with my whole weight, I'm just thinking, this is not normal. I can't think of a single TV show or movie where this happens. I can't think of anyone who I can look to for help or advice in this situation. But I just pull with all my might, and I shut the door as soon as I get him in there. And I start shaking, because I know that as soon as she gets in here, I'm going to want to cry but I don't want her to ask me why I'm crying. So I have to hold that feeling inside, and I feel embarrassed by what has happened, but none of that can be communicated. I shove the incident away in the back of my mind. I don't tell my mom about it. I want us to move on. I want us to be a happy family. But the next couple months are not going well. Things are getting progressively worse with his condition, with his drinking. And my mom, before we move back to the States, sits me down, and I look at her face, and I can tell in the last nine months that she's aged. She's tired. There are deeper circles under her eyes. She's just feeling more puffy in general. And she says, we have tried a lot for your father, 
but we're going to do something a little bit differently. We're going to have an intervention. I ask her, what is an intervention? She kind of looks up at the ceiling as if the answer is written up there, and she says, well, an intervention is when you love someone very much, and you want them to get better, and they've done a few things that have really hurt you. Can you think of a few instances when your dad has done something that has really hurt or embarrassed you? And a series of montages starts to play out in my brain. The time he hit on a bunch of college students at my favorite ice cream parlor. This time he got up during an airplane takeoff and a bunch of air marshals decked him. The time we were in customs in Beijing and we had to get out of a two-hour line because he hadn't filled out the paperwork and a nice Norwegian woman saved us because I didn't know what our social security number was. And I said, yeah, mom, I, I have a few stories I can tell. And so when we get back to the States, she rents out a room in a hotel, and we all gather in that space with some friends of his, some people I don't really know well, but they're older. And in the evening, he comes into the room, and when he sees everybody in the room, he stands up a little bit straighter, and my mom says, have a seat. And one by one, everyone goes around and describes the positive influence he's had on their life, the things that he's done to help them, but also the number of times that he's really embarrassed them and and how his actions have impacted them. And I'm so excited to say my piece because, hey, if this intervention thing works, then maybe our family can come back together and we can be a, a happy, cohesive unit. But I'm noticing his expression, he's not really listening. He's moving around constantly. He's scoffing at what people are saying. He's fidgeting in his seat, looking at the ground, looking at the ceiling. And then finally, before I can even have anything to say, he just stands up and marches towards the door. And a little light bulb goes off in my head. Something I've seen in all the movies is that if you just shout out to someone, like, I love you, or Stella, or something, you know, (laughs) you're really demanding that calls attention, it'll be like a salve that just fixes the whole thing. And it just like, bam, like the whole situation is fixed. And so I stand up and I yell towards my dad, dad, I love you. And I let that hang in the air. And I'm waiting for the magic to happen. And his hand grabs the doorknob and yanks it open. And he storms out of the room and slams the door behind him. And before anyone can say anything to me, I go straight to the bathroom. I don't want to hear their sympathy. I don't want to hear their sorry. Because all I can think is, I don't think my dad loves me. I decide that I am just going to pretend like nothing around me is happening. Like I am just going to get completely lost in my comics, in my movies, in in anything that takes me out of this situation because if he can't handle this, if he can't take the second and third and fourth chances that life has given him, I sure as hell am not. And a funny thing starts to happen to him. His stomach starts to swell. It almost looks as if he's pregnant. And every month my mom takes him to the doctor and it shrinks again. And we've gone to many specialists and many meetings, and they've explained what's happening to me. And I don't quite understand what it is exactly, but it has something to do with his liver. And this continues to happen for several months until one night, I can't sleep. I go to the bathroom, and I see that the door to my parents' room is open. And the light is on. And I go over to see what's happening. I see that it's just my dad in the room, He's lying across the bed, and the way that the lamp is shining on him, it casts this really stark shadow behind him. It almost feels like there's a ghost in the room with us. And I can see that his face is wet from tears, and he's just very quietly crying. In my nightmares, the first thing I do is I look for my parents, because my parents are going to protect me from whatever monsters that exist. 
But in this moment, I can't tell if I'm awake or if I am in a nightmare and my dad is the monster. And I leave the room before I can find out. And in the morning, I know the ambulances are on their way because I can hear the sirens. And I don't want to talk to anybody. And I don't want to hear their sympathy. So I go into the laundry room. And every day, my mom asks me, do you want to visit him in the hospital? And I say, no, I think I'm okay. And this goes on for several days. And finally, she says in her voice that demands attention, this is serious. He could really die from this. And for a moment, I imagine a world where he's not alive. And I kind of wish he were dead. She wouldn't have to take care of him. I wouldn't have to be embarrassed by him. Wouldn't we all be happier? But I don't say this to her. And I'm very much not expecting the phone call from her at 5.30 in the morning. My mom is sobbing, and she can barely make out her words, and she says, this is it. They're going to take him off of life support. I need you to get here right now. I get a ride from a neighbor, and within minutes, I'm at the UVA Medical Center, and I'm walking through the doors of the ICU, and he is at the very end of a long hallway. And as I'm walking down the hallway, I can see all these doors next to me are open, and the people inside them look as if they're almost dead. They are wrinkled, they're shriveled, they're tiny. And I think, my dad doesn't belong here. He's young. He has so much left for life to live. And we get to his room, and I feel like I'm walking into a scene from The Matrix. There are machines everywhere, beeping and buzzing. He looks like a completely different person. He is usually very strong and muscular and meaty, and I can see the bones in his fingers at this point. There's a long feeding tube going down his throat. As I walk closer to the bed, one of the nurses begins to pull that tube out of his mouth. I can see this mustache has started to form on his mouth, and I take his hand in mine. I say what I've been wanting to say for a really long time. I say, Dad, I really love you so much, and he doesn't say anything. He just looks at me with his really big eyes. I look at my mom, and I'm like, why isn't he saying anything to me? And she says, he has sepsis. You know when you got a cut on your arm last summer, and it got covered in a yellow scab? That was because it was infected. And that is what has happened to his organs. They're infected, and he can't talk because of that but he knows what you're saying. And I look at his eyes, and it's as if he is saying with his eyes what I've been wanting him to say back to me, which is, I love you too. Coincidentally, that day is also his birthday. And since my dad was not one for a round of happy birthday, we read him his favorite poem, The Owl and the Pussycat by Edward Lear. The first couple of lines go like, The owl and the pussycat went to sea in a beautiful pea-green boat. They took some honey and plenty of money wrapped up in a five-pound note. As we're saying this to him, I can, even though his face isn't really moving, I can feel the joy behind his eyes. We pick up our phones and call everybody that he knew and he was close to, and, and they say their last goodbyes. And then the doctor says that it's time to take him off of life support. And they do. And I can see his eyes go from dark brown to gray. And the nurse asks the doctor, what is the time of death? And he says, he hasn't died yet. I almost want to turn around and slap him. Because I know what a living person looks like. And he's not alive. The funeral is about a week later, and at the funeral, people say one of two things to me. 
both of which I hate. The first one is, I remember you when you were this big. And the other one is, your dad loved you so much. And what I feel when they say the second one is an indictment, like, you know, if you had just loved him more, if you had forgiven him earlier, none of this would have happened. This is your fault. And I suddenly feel like I'm an evil witch, and that because I had that thought where I had wished him dead, that had actually made it come true. That night, my mom had made these little flower boats to put out on the water to sort of send his soul off to the great beyond. In that moment, I realized, looking at the small, delicate petals in the light of the candles, that it's not my fault, that he was a fragile person, that we are all fragile people, but we are wholly deserving of love despite our mistakes, and that it is so much worthwhile to love and forgive than to fear and isolate. And even now, it's been 11 years since then, I have tried so persistently to love in so many different situations, even when it's not a good idea and it's not wholesome or healthy, but in the end it's taught me that the full richness of life can only be really felt when we open our hearts to love and let other people in. Thank you. This is Risk. This is Nana Grizzle behind me now. I saw them live in New York recently, and they were absolutely fantastic. Before that, we heard from Charlie. Charlie uh, talked to us about how attending adult children of alcoholics groups helped in their processing of all of that. Before Charlie, we heard a little interstitial by Risk fan Robert Fulham with our episode editor Jeff Barr doing little tweaks and remixes of it. And you can find Robert on SoundCloud at Robert Fulham. Our final story on this week's episode is from our recent show that we did in Salt Lake City. You can find Masha Shukovich online at poetryfoods.com. She's not just a poet, she's also a chef. So here she is now. This is Masha Shukovich at the Risk Live Show in Salt Lake with a story we call The Soft Animal. It's not 2019, it's 2004. 
I just came to the middle of nowhere, Texas from Belgrade, Yugoslavia, to go to grad school. I'm finally in America, the land of my fucking dreams. <sighs> and I'm utterly and totally miserable. The way you can only be when after years of trying and dreaming, you finally get exactly what you want. I don't know how this grad school thing works. I have no money. I miss my mom. I miss my fucking dog. I miss my brother. I even miss my control freak of a father. Nothing is familiar. Even the air smells strange. When people greet me with, hey, how are you? I actually tell them how I am. <laughs> Instead of responding with a culturally appropriate, hey, doing well, how are you? I feel totally and utterly lost. And the worst part is that I am married to someone with whom I have fallen out of love. Maybe I was never in love with him to begin with. Maybe all we had connecting us was our shared desire to get the hell out of Serbia and to America, the land where all your dreams are supposed to come true. So here we are in Texas, my husband, Victor, and I. Throughout our relationship, he would affectionately ask me, whose property are you? The first time he asked me this, it made me cringe, even though at a time in my early 20s, I just didn't have the words to explain why. He immediately made it clear that the answer he required was, I am your property, Victor. But it always felt so wrong to say it, and my heart was never in it, even though I dutifully went through the motions of it every time. Like so many men from ex-Yugoslavia, Victor was patriarchal, he was ego-driven, he was quick to anger, and I also later learned that he was pathologically dependent on his mother, which is also not anything unusual. But in spite of all this, I was attracted to him because he was a truly beautiful visual artist. I come from a culture that's marked by poverty and war, a culture that actively discouraged me from becoming a writer and a storyteller. I was praised from an early age for winning poetry and writing contests, but I was also told that I needed to choose a much more sensible profession if I wanted to survive and not cut off my ear and not end up always wearing black and killing myself in an attic with a lot of cats. <laughs> and then I met Victor who basically said, fuck you, I'm doing it anyway, to the world that tried to pigeonhole him. And I didn't really want to be with him. I wanted to be him. Victor and I met in an online chat room and our romance seemed to be blooming. But the first time that we met face to face, I just wanted to run for my fucking life. There was literally a voice in my head that was screaming, no! But he pursued me relentlessly. And he told me over the phone after I told him that I, I just couldn't go through with this, I didn't want to see him anymore. He said, no one will ever love you the way that I do. And he was crying, and he sounded genuinely overwhelmed with emotion. And because every romantic movie that I ever saw, and every relationship that I knew, including my parents' relationship, had taught me that not taking a, a no for an answer equals love, I said yes to it all. And also, Victor was the one person I knew who wanted to get out of Serbia and to America as much as I did. And about... A year later, we were married, in part because that improved our chances of getting an American visa, which is really, really hard to get. A day or two before we were to leave for Texas, my mom came over to our place to help us pack, and Victor and I got into one of our nearly daily fights. We were yelling at each other about all the crap that the other one was bringing to Texas, and I told him, you're bringing too many fucking CDs. Why don't you leave a few behind, huh? Maybe a couple. We won't have room for clothes. And this made him really mad, and he picked up one of his CD boxes, and he flung it 
across the room, sort of like a ninja star, and he was aiming for my head. I didn't duck, and it hit me right across the forehead and, and let, left this long, bleeding gash. I didn't cry. I just stared at him. Go fuck yourself, Masha, he said. You can go to Texas by yourself. I'm not coming. So he slammed the door, and he left, and he slammed the door so hard that little pieces of plaster fell to the ground. As usual, he went to his mother's house, which was a couple of streets down. My mom, who had lived through many such scenes in her own marriage, but didn't realize that I was walking in her footsteps because I never told her how bad it was, stared at me with her mouth agape in shock. I remember looking at her and saying very calmly, even though my hands were shaking, I said, you have no idea how much I wish that he wasn't coming with me. But this was year 2004 in Serbia, where women were called the traitors of their nation if they didn't want to have children, and if they didn't accept the God-given authority of their husbands. And my grandmother had survived the war by herself, but I couldn't even imagine a scenario in which I could go across the ocean into a whole new world without a man. So here we are, a month or so into our American dreams. It's September 2004. Both of us are in grad school. We're hardly speaking to each other. Both of us are deeply unhappy. Victor is struggling with his English. I'm trying to help him by translating, by writing emails, and, and even making phone calls for him. Hi, this is Igor. Oh, uh, yes, I would like to return a book to the library. <laughs> but I'm hating every fucking second of it. He's like a hopeless child, and, and I don't know the rules of this place either. I'm working on campus and I'm going to school and he greets me with verbal abuse when I get back to our apartment. This shit we're in, it's all your fault. Why didn't you tell me I would be expected to do programming in this fucking program I'm in? Why would I tell you this? You're supposed to know this. I'm an artist. I can't even understand the fucking professors when they talk. What am I supposed to do now, huh? Maybe you could try studying, Victor. Fuck you, you bitch. A few days later, Victor came home in a marginally better mood. There's this one guy in my program that's really cool. He saw me reading my programming book. Reading it. A programming book. And offered to help with C++. He's some kind of computer whiz or something. Even his English is perfect. Where did a fucking Turk learn English so well? I don't know. Oh, that's great, I say, and I'm thinking, really, a Turkish guy? How's that for irony? Serbs and Turks have a very long history of hating one another. Just give Serbs 10 minutes, and he'll tell you how his ancestors were enslaved by the Ottomans for 500 years. And now this guy's tutoring Victor in C++. We've come a long way. So Victor decides to invite this Turkish guy over for dinner. I reluctantly agree because the guy is helping him, but I'm really pissed about it. I don't have time to cook for this guy and entertain him. I have shit to do. I'm drowning in shit. But I also can't stand fighting with Victor about it and being called names and blamed for everything under the sun. So I say, okay, sure, I'll cook. That's one thing I'm good at in any country. I know that Victor is really inviting the Turkish guy over to show me and the food off, but I don't care. Whatever rocks his boat. So dinner time comes, and there's a knock at the door, and I wipe my hands on the dishcloth, and I go to answer, because, of course, that's my job, too. And I'm cursing under my breath because this guy is right on time. <laughs> and I was hoping he would be a little late, be a little considerate, and I open the door, and I feel like someone just punched me in the gut. I have no words. I'm staring at the most beautiful man in the world. I, I've always had a thing for dark men with long hair, and he looks like he has Aragorn, or Khal Drogo, or both, <laughs> tattooed over his forehead. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jem, he says. Hi. I'm Masha, I say, and I offer him my hand. Jem takes my hand, and then we just stand there. 
staring at each other, smiling. We're supposed to be shaking hands, but really we're just holding hands. And our eyes are locked, empires rise and fall. <laughs> They're warriors and horses, dragons, mountains, crumbling into dust. There's a Nazgul somewhere up there. Species become extinct. And we were just standing there holding hands and staring at each other. Victor must have emerged at some point and to welcome his guest. And I must have let go of this beautiful stranger's hand. But I don't remember any of that. I remember Victor saying, so I see you met my woman. Not wife. Woman. Jem visibly cringed at Victor's choice of words, and I laughed uncomfortably. <laughs> at least he didn't introduce me as his property, I thought. But none of that really mattered, because for the rest of that evening, all I can remember is talking to Jem, and smiling at Jem, and serving food to Jem, and asking, would you like more water, Jem? <laughs> It was like someone took a giant bottle of white out and just rode Victor out of the story. I was under a spell like never before in my life. And I couldn't ignore the truth any longer. My marriage to Victor was a shit show. And Jem wasn't the cause. He was the consequence. One of my favorite poems of all time is Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. You may know this one. It starts like this. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Back in 2004, I was completely disconnected from the soft animal of my body. All I knew was that I needed to get out of Serbia no matter what, and I did it. I had managed to get out of my father's house a few years before, but I had only exchanged one abusive household for another. And the only way to get away from one man that I knew at the time was to run to another. And this new man, he was kind and beautiful and smart. He played guitar. <laughs> and he sang like me. And he was a deep thinker. And did I mention kind? I've never met anyone like him in my entire life outside of a book. Up until the moment I met Jem, I was like a zombie. I was single-minded, I was numb, mindlessly moving towards my goal of getting to America. But somehow in that moment, as Jem and I stared at each other for a completely inappropriate amount of time, the soft animal of my body took over. And it was going to love what and who it loved, no matter the cost. What happened in the next few weeks was a whirlwind of crazy shit. I was falling in love with another man right in front of my husband's eyes. But there was no going back. I lost any sense of propriety or fear. I took every opportunity to spend time with Jam. I knew that Victor was quick to anger and irrational and violent. I didn't care. All I knew was that I had to tell Jem how I felt about him. So I had this class project that, he, that I decided needed to involve a few songs that I would record. So of course, I asked Jem for help, and he said yes. We met on campus and spent the whole night talking and singing and connecting on the deepest emotional level possible. You know that night when you just talk the whole night and it feels like you never want it to end? At dawn, I read him a poem I wrote about him. I just want to die thinking about the poem. <laughs> it was bad. I read it in a shaky voice and when I finished I said, what I'm really trying to say here is that I think I love you. My chest felt way too small to contain my heartbeat. And I waited, blood beating in my ears. What have I done? Should I plead insanity? I think I love you too. 
Jem said. Everything unraveled after that. Victor could see that something was very wrong. Are you in love with Jem? He asked me. I, I don't know, I said. I was terrified. Yes or no, he shouted. The sound of his voice reverberated in the room. Yes, I whispered. You fucking whore, he screamed. You're fucking around with a Turk? We're not fucking. We're in love, I said. You make me sick. He spat at me. I cleaned up this bed without a word. In the blurry days that followed, I stopped eating and sleeping. I was torn apart by guilt. Our parents got involved. My father was pressuring me to go back to Serbia. Your brother will kill himself if you don't come back, he said. Do you want your brother dead? Do you want his blood on your hands? My mother-in-law told me to just get over my feelings and save my marriage. Everyone falls in love, she said. So what if you fell in love with a Turkish boy? That's not what marriage is about. I found the idea of separating marriage and love absolutely appalling. I didn't want to be someone's property. I wanted to be someone's beloved. I was still dragging myself to work every day because my job was paying our bills, but I pretty much stopped going to class. I thought of leaving Victor, of course, but who would take care of him? Who would cook? I was the one with a job. How would he pay for school and food and the apartment? And where would I go? Going back to Serbia to my father's house? That was unimaginable. Going back to my love with Victor? Unthinkable. But my life in America was becoming unbearable too. After all those years of dreaming about it, it had been several weeks since I admitted to Victor that I was in love with Jem. And Victor was still verbally abusing me every waking hour and monitoring my every move. So one day on my lunch break, I ran out of my office and I met up with Jem off campus on the street. I ugly cried. Everyone is pressuring me to go back to Serbia. I, I don't know what to think anymore. I can't go back. I will die if I go back. What do I do, Jem? Jack hugged me right there in the middle of the street. He said, I can't tell you that. No one can tell you what to do. But you need to know one thing. I am here for you. And I'll support you. Whatever you decide to do. No one had ever spoken to me like that in my entire life. No man had ever truly seen me as an autonomous being until Jem. Jem didn't try to force me to do anything. He didn't try to force me to follow his lead. And so I didn't run. I came back to the apartment after work that day. I was tired deep down in my bones. Hello, whore, Victor hissed at me. I have had enough of his insults. Stop calling me that, I said. I was shaking all over. What did you say? He asked. I said to stop calling me a whore. The features of his face shrunk somehow, and he moved towards me, his hand raised. I stared at him in defiance. He started hitting me, first with an open palm, then fists, on the head, face, back. I covered my face with my arms. He clawed at my hands, trying to pry them apart. I didn't fight back, but I wrapped my arms tighter around my head, and he started kicking me. He was still wearing shoes. He kicked me in the stomach, ribs, back. You fucking whore, he yelled over and over again. The pain moved through my body like high voltage, excruciating. But also it felt like it was happening to someone else. I was hovering above the scene now. There was me curled up on the floor like a fetus. There was Victor bent over me, purple with rage a kicking, hitting machine. I thought he would never stop, but at some point he did. I crawled away from him into the walk-in closet in the bedroom. It was 
very clear to me that that he wasn't angry because he loved me and he couldn't bear to lose me. He was angry because his property wasn't his property anymore. Victor stumbled after me. I cringed in fear, bracing myself for more pain, but he surprised me by saying, I'm so sorry. I don't know what came over me. I'm so sorry. His voice sounded like it was coming from a great distance, like I was hearing it through water. There was a loud buzzing in my ears, like a swarm of metal bees. I passed out. He brought me a glass of water and splashed some on my face. The soft animal of my body was screaming inside. Run, you fucking idiot, run! As I was lying curled up in the closet that night, I asked myself, do you want to live? I realized that the only way for me to stay alive was to get the hell away from that man. The next morning, I left with one small suitcase. I told Victor I would be staying with a girlfriend, so he would let me go. But in reality, Jem pleaded with me to move in with him and his roommate. I was grateful that most of my bruises were not immediately visible, and I hid the rest until they faded. I was feeling guilty and ashamed and broken. I told a much tamer version of what happened to my parents and to Jem. It felt like another betrayal of Victor to tell the full truth. Several weeks later, with some help from a neighbor and from Jem, I finally safely moved out and put Victor behind me. I was objectively free But what followed wasn't a sense of freedom or having dodged a bullet. It was more fear, more shame, more guilt. And even though I learned soon after leaving Victor that he cheated on me throughout our relationship with more than a few people, I still felt guilty. I felt guilty for more than just falling in love with Jem. I was guilty of choosing my own life selfishly over my husband's life. It's been 15 years since then, 15 years since I left Victor, 15 years since Jem, my beloved, and I got together. Even after all this time, I still feel a wave of panic rise over me when I catch a glimpse of someone who looks like Victor on the street. Since then, Jem and I have been through some really hard shit and some really good times too. Neither one of us is perfect, and that's okay. Since then, we have both finished our PhDs, we got married, we lost our first pregnancy, but we have two amazing little girls now. We still sting together nearly every day. We sound damn good together. (laughs) Every day, I write Every day, I meditate. Every day, I grow a little less afraid of being in the world just as I am. Every day, I grow a little more whole. Every day, I take a deep breath, and I check in with myself. How does it feel like in there? I ask the soft animal of my body. And these days, she answers, it feels like home.
That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Genesis behind me now, and we just heard from Masha Shukovich. You can always find information about where Risk is appearing live next at risk-show.com slash tour. And to pitch us for any of those shows, just go to risk-show.com slash submissions. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. <laughs>